This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Thank you very much for that introduction. What I would like to start with is an attempt to see what actually genocide means. Now, as many of you know, the term genocide was coined by a refugee Polish-Jewish lawyer who managed to get to the United States in 1941. His name was Rafael Lemkin, and he coined the term genocide in 43 and then published it in 44. His uh, aim was <clears throat> to have the international community pass a international, an international law that would outlaw the murder and annihilation of human groups, especially ethnic groups. Now, <clears throat> he managed to persuade the State Department in this country and then other countries and uh, in 1948, on the 9th of December 1948, the United Nations passed the convention, the so-called Genocide Convention, the Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. One day before the United Nations Assembly passed the Declaration of Human Rights, so the two are obviously connected. The convention does not really represent exactly what Lemkin wanted. It was a result of horse trading between different powers and countries and governments. And the convention is something that I don't think any serious academic today will agree with. It is very problematic. It defines genocide as the intent and action to annihilate an ethnic, national, racial, or religious group as such, in whole or in part. And then it lists five elements, each of which defines genocide. No gradation between them, but each one of them equally defines genocide. One is murdering members of the targeted group, Two, is causing physical and or mental harm to members of the group. Three, creating conditions of life that make the survival of group impossible. Four, preventing births. Five, kidnapping, chil uh, kidnapping children. Now, <clears throat> what should you do if you recognize something as being a genocide? Only state parties, members, state members of the United Nations can do that. 
and they should then turn to the United Nations to do something about it. Which means, in fact, to turn to the Security Council, because that is the only body at the United Nations that can actually act. Now, if you want to go to the, United, to the Security Council to prevent a threat of genocide, well, good luck. There are five veto powers there, and at the United Nations there are groups of countries that have interests sometimes, or should I say often, to prevent prevention. And so action is only possible if there is a consensus amongst the great powers and amongst the major groups of countries at the United Nations to do something. It can happen. It did happen. For instance, in Kenya, some years ago, there were elections which resulted in terrible inter-ethnic clashes. There was a huge number of victims already, but nobody was interested in that. The great powers had no interest in having a major mass violence break out in Kenya, and there was no group of countries that wanted to have this continue. So the United Nations could send Mr. Kofi Annan to Kenya to patch up a compromise which still holds. A parallel situation developed in Macedonia, 1991, and again later on, where Albanians, Bulgarians, and Macedonians clashed. And there was a danger of a mutual ethnic mass murder between Albanians and Macedonians. And again, no one was interested in it. And so the United Nations through NATO could intervene and prevent a mass violence of human rights. You had a parallel situation even in East Timor. But, you know, those are exceptions. There was nothing done when in the early 1960s the Igbo people in Nigeria wanted to establish a separate state and there was mass violence and over one million people were murdered or died of hunger. And the United Nations didn't intervene because there were powers that didn't want to have an intervention. There was no intervention in Rwanda because the Americans decided they had no interest there, so they wouldn't do anything to prevent what was obviously going to happen. And the French supported the murderers. In Darfur, which is in Sudan, obviously, there's a question of oil because 60% of all the oil concessions in Sudan are owned by the Chinese. And so China is not interested in any action that would limit the possibility of the murderous government in the capital of Sudan, Khartoum, to, to prevent them from carrying on what is actually a genocide in Darfur and what is spreading now again after a peace was patched up in 2005 is spreading again to the southern part of the country. So there is a major problem that we have. Now, if we go back to the definition in the Convention, uh, the annihilation of ethnic, national, racial, and religious groups is mentioned. What do you mean by racial groups? There are no races. 
We all come from the same place. 150 to 200,000 years ago in Africa, <coughs> Homo sapiens developed there and then spread all over the globe. There are no races, there's only one human race. A Canadian Inuit can marry a Harvard graduate and they will produce healthy children. An Australian Aborigine and a, an absolvent of Oxford University in England can have together healthy children. There are greater differences between dogs than there are between human beings. There are no races, but there's racism, which is an invention of Southern Europe in the 15th century, when the Christians in Northern Spain uh, conquered Southern Spain that was still in the hands of the Muslims and spread then into Northern Africa and then along the West African coast. The first racist law was passed in Toledo in Spain in 1429. It was directed against the Moors, that's the Arabs of Southern Spain, and the Jews. It then became a way to justify slavery. Slaves were enslaved by other Africans, then sold to Arab traders who sold them to Western Europeans in the coast, on the coast of West Africa. And they were then transported to the New World. And in order to justify that, the obvious difference between uh, whites and blacks, the color, color, which had never bothered anyone before that, became the dividing issue. Racism developed. If you look at Gothic churches in Europe that were built in the 12th and 13th century, in almost every one of them you will find the statue of St. Mauritius, an African with typical African features. But you see, color, shape of body, and so on, are secondary or tertiary mutations of no importance whatsoever. So, in 1948, to talk about racial groups made some sense because everybody was part of a race. There was a German race and a Russian race and an English race and a Jewish race and an Italian race. What they meant was ethnicities or nationalities. But in 2012, to talk about racial groups means that you in some way possibly accept racism. But it's there in the convention. And those five elements that I mentioned, is it really the same thing if you kidnap a child or you murder it? If you drove hundreds of thousands of Jews into gas chambers, was that the creation of conditions of life that made the survival of the group impossible? And if you wanted to kill all the women, what does it mean to prevent births? It makes no sense. And when you compare these, you know, in whole or in part, now it's understandable why they wrote it, because it was after World War II. And what was in their minds was the annihilation of the Jews as a whole, 
and opposing parts. So that was introduced into the convention. But there's a bit of a difference, isn't it? If you want to annihilate a whole group, all of them, then there's no chance of their survival in the future. If you kill some of them, part of them, then there still is a chance of survival after that, of the culture, of the people, and so on. So the convention is very problematic. Also, it does not include groups that are defined by politics, economics, and social status. Give you a typical case. In the 1930s, 1930 to 1933, <coughs> 3.4 million people were murdered in the Ukraine because they were considered to be kulaks. And the idea was of the Stalinist regime to annihilate the kulaks as a class. That's a quote. Now, who was a kulak? A supposedly a rich peasant, somebody with two cows instead of one. Now, if he had two cows, he was a kulak. And if he had only one cow or no cow at all, he wasn't a kulak. But if he had no cow at all but opposed the party, then he was a kulak. And if he had three cows but was a member of the party and was willing to join in whatever the party was doing, then he wasn't a kulak. So it's a virtual group. It's not a real group. It's a virtual group. But it became a virtual group because the people were persecuted and killed and starved. So do you include that in genocide? I think you should. In 1995, the American uh, researcher, historian, sociologist, Barbara Half, coined the term politicide, by which she meant and means the murder of political groups, social groups, economic groups, virtual or real. <coughs> That applies to the Chinese peasants under Mao Zedong, millions of whom died as a result of some political determination of their social status. That applies to other groups. So when I talk about genocide, I mean the intent and action to annihilate gro human groups in whole or in part as such. This is not something that is written down in any law. And there is no signed consensus of all academics. Academics love to argue about definitions. So you can't expect academics to come up with a consensus. But it is more or less accepted. And the people who actually coined these kind of definitions were a couple of uh, historians, sociologists, in Canada, Frank Chalk and Kurt Jonasson, who said something similar to what I just said about 15 years ago in a very important book that they, that they published. So when we talk about this concept of genocide, and we realize that this is something that bothers us today, that there are lots of places where this either happens or is in danger of happening. The question is, is this something new? Is this something special or particular to the 20th century, maybe to the 19th century? Maybe since the, say, genocide of the American Indians in North America, or 
in the early 20th century, the destruction of the Herero and Nama in what is today Namibia and Southwest Africa, or the Armenians in World War I, or later incidents of that kind, and the Holocaust, of course, and then post-Holocaust. No. This is very ancient. They discovered two years ago, in two places in Central Europe, in a place called Talheim in South Germany, and in a place called Scheltz in Austria, quite independent of each other, burials of large groups of humans who were obviously, had obviously been killed by other humans because they found the implements with which they were killed. Men, women, children, babies. And that's in Neolithic times. Who are we actually? We are, I would suggest, territorial predatory mammals. We exist because we eat meat and fish, except for a few vegetarians amongst us. Now, you don't go out in the streets of Santa Barbara to hunt antelopes, because there aren't that many antelopes around in Santa Barbara. Instead, you go to a supermarket and you pick off the shelves meat and fish. We are hunters. We live by killing other beings, other animals. And we are territorial predators because we need an area, whether it's real or virtual, where we can live by these means. But we are not only killers, we are also collectors. We eat bread. What's bread? Bread is made of grass. Uh, green stalks that turn yellow, that grow little wild yellow things on them. You take them, you grind them, you call it flour, and you make bread of it, and cakes, and biscuits. We eat grass. We also eat fruit of the ground and fruit of the trees. And we cannot do that as individuals because we are weak, both as predators and as collectors. So we are herd animals. Each one of us belongs, whether they like it or not, to a herd of human beings. Clans, tribes, ethnicities, nations, states. Now there are people, especially students at universities, who will say, I don't belong to anything. I'm a universalist. I don't belong to an ethnicity or nationality or anything like that. Well, they can say that until the taxman comes along. And then they realize whether they like it or not, they are members of a herd. And because we are members of herds, we have to develop certain qualities within us that are opposite to the killing instinct. We have to develop sympathy and love and collaboration and cooperation and even the willingness, the readiness to suffer for others because that may guarantee that they will be willing to suffer for us. Rescue others, because unconsciously we know 
that if we have rescued someone, if the situation turns around, that person may well reciprocate and help us. This is in fact what happened during the Holocaust. When people were rescued in Eastern Europe and then left Eastern Europe and came to the West and their rescuers stayed in Eastern Europe, then in many cases, the people who had escaped to the West sent packages and helped and sometimes got these people out of Eastern Europe because they remembered what these people did to them. They helped them survive. So we developed two opposing instincts. We have in our societies, and the Jewish society is a very good example of that, we have laws. In Jewish tradition, we have the Ten Commandments, which are actually a copy of what preceded uh, the Jewish people in the Middle East. And one of the commandments, as you all know, says, Thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. Because killing is permitted. When you dress up young men and lately also young women in funny clothes called uniforms and you send them out to kill other people in perhaps slightly different clothing, then that is not only desirable. You get medals for that. Killing is permitted murder. Murder is forbidden killing. Because a society where murder is permitted will not exist. So we have these two tendencies. The tendencies to kill, to murder. What happens there? You see, as herd animals, as, herd, as groups of people, when another group comes into our real or virtual territory, there are four options. One is to absorb them because they may strengthen us. The second one is to enslave them because there are certain things that we don't like to do and we, to, we like others to do for us. The third option is to tell them to go away, which they sometimes do and sometimes don't. And the fourth option is to kill them. And if you look at the relationships between different groups that invaded each other's territory, real or virtual, you will always find either one or a combination of these options exercised by the stronger group. Now, given that situation, is there any possibility, any hope of reducing the killing instinct and strengthening the other one? Well, I think there is. It's extremely difficult to do. It has not really been attempted until pretty recently. But there is a possibility. We will never be able to abolish the killing instinct because it sits within us. And I would argue, and I know this is outrageous what I'm saying here, there is in every one of us potentially a tiny little bit of a Hitler, a Himmler, or an Eichmann. 
in different circumstances, with different socialization, different education, and so on and so forth. This can come out. So what we have to do is to repress it, suppress it. We have to do everything in our power to strengthen the one instinct against the other. So we are dealing, when we deal with genocide, not with something specific, you know, to one place or to one time. We are dealing with a common human pathology, with a common human sickness. Where does the Holocaust fit in there? But it's obvious, isn't it, that the Holocaust is a form of genocide. One doesn't even have to prove it. And the term Holocaust, of course, is the wrong term. Because Holocaust is a Greek term that means whole burnt offering to the gods. Well, that is what the Holocaust certainly was not. But the word doesn't matter. For certain reasons, it became accepted. The Hebrew term Shoah, which means catastrophe, actually means natural catastrophe very largely. So that also is not quite the right term for this. So should we sort of become complicated and speak each time about the genocide of the Jewish people at the hands of the Nazi Germany and its supporters? Well, that's a bit complicated. So we use a shortened version, and we call it the Holocaust. It's not worth spending time on semantics and on words, as long as we know what we mean. So the Holocaust was a form of genocide. Was it parallel to other genocides? Well, in a sense, certainly, yes. What, were, what are the parallels between the Holocaust and other genocides? Well, first of all, and mainly, and centrally, the suffering of the victims. There is no difference in suffering between Jews and Tutsi and Cambodians or anyone else in, a, in such a situation of mass murder and genocide. There's no better genocide than another genocide. There's no better mass murder than another mass murder. There's no better torture than another torture. There's another parallel. In all genocides that I know of, the perpetrator always used the best possible technical means at his disposal in order to perpetrate genocide. Whether it was economic means, whether it was a special units set up, whether it was uh, certain military activities, and whether it was certain attitudes, they repeat themselves. They are parallel. If you take, for instance, as an example, the case of Rwanda, where you had a dictatorship of a certain section of the Hutus. Hutus and Tutsis, by the way, are not ethnicities. They are invented ethnicities, because in actual fact, they speak the same language, go to the same churches, and have the same basic culture. It is based on social differentiation of a 
former pre-colonial aristocracy and government and land, land ownership and vassalage of Hutu peasants. But it became, they became ethnicities. They are virtual ethnicities that became real ones. And there was a dictatorship there which wanted to maintain power. And the Tutsi, only 15, 17% of the population had been the rulers of the place before the colonialists came. So they were landowners, they had cattle. They also populated the university in the center of the country, in Kigali. They were also, to a large extent, the traders, the merchants, the wealthier part of the population. And the dictatorship, the Hutu dictatorship, wanted to take all this away from them. So there were, there were persecutions, there were massacres, well before the genocide in Rwanda. So there are, there's a history of inter-ethnic clashes, violent clashes, massacres. And many Tutsi fled to Uganda, and together with Hutu, who opposed the regime, in Rwanda, established an army which invaded Rwanda in 1990 and occupied part of the northern part of the country adjoining Uganda. And the dictatorship was afraid that this army would join Hutu oppositionaries who were in a certain part of Rwanda, very strong in certain parts of Rwanda. And the answer that they had was kill all the Tutsi. So you had a military element there, the army that was invading. You had an economic element there. You had a power element. They wanted to maintain power. That was more important than anything else. And when the genocide started, it started actually on the night of April 6, 1994, with a murder of Hutu who were opposed to this dictatorship, the violent dictatorship. And there was special... Units that were set up, militias that did most of the killing. Is that paralleled in other genocides? You bet it is. You can find exact parallels to that. Not only in the Armenian genocide, let's say, which of course preceded Rwanda. You can find it in the Holocaust too. Not the military side, because the Jews didn't have an army. But the economic element, the special units, the bureaucracy. There was a fantastic Hutu bureaucracy. Now, there are these parallels. But there is something special about the Holocaust even there. Because, you know, the Germans set up special factories of a new kind that had never been there before in the whole of human history. In the death camps, in places called Treblinka and Sobibor and Belzec and Birkenau and Chelno, there were places that produced a new type of product, corpses. Live Jews came in at one end and corpses came out at the other end. It was done according to all the principles of modern industry. There is no 
precedent in human history for that. Where are the differences between this particular genocide and other genocides? Let me put it this way. When you look at all, and I say all, other genocides, you will find that elements that make up any kind of genocide will always be repeated in one or more other genocides, including the Holocaust. But in the Holocaust, there are elements that you cannot find anywhere else, that are totally unprecedented. What are these elements? Now, there are quite a number of them, so I'll limit myself to just a few. To start with, for the first time in human history, a state organization targeted a certain group. Every single person of that group, everywhere in the world, that was the intention. They didn't manage to do it. Wherever they could, they identified that person according to their definition, not Jewish self-definition. There were people whose grandparents had converted to Christianity or just had abandoned all kinds of religious identification anyway, who didn't even know that they, had, they were of Jewish parentage, but who were defined as Jews by the perpetrators. They were defined, they were marked, they were dispossessed, they were humiliated, they were concentrated, they were transported, sometimes on foot, just a matter of a kilometer, a mile or something from the place they were killed ultimately, and then they were killed. Everyone they could, every single person they could reach, everywhere in the world. And one can prove that. Adolf Hitler met with the uh, head of the uh, Palestinian National Movement at that time, the Mufti of Jerusalem, Khajamin al-Husseini, on the 28th of November 1941 in Berlin. Now, Mr. Husseini didn't know any German, and Mr. Hitler didn't know any Arabic, so there was a translator who took stenographic notes, so we know exactly what happened there. At some point, Hitler assured Husseini that, to quote more or less exactly, once we win the war, we shall turn to all the countries in the world to treat the Jews the way we treat them here. This is November 1941. The date is important, you know, 28th of November, because on the 5th of December, the Soviets started their first major counter-offensive and threw the Germans back some 100, 150 miles. But in November, there was still the expectation that the Nazis would conquer Moscow. So it was not so far away. In the future, they would win the war and they would do what he said they would do. So the intent was global. For the first time in human history, a genocide was conceived as a universal, global project. And then you have the ideology, you see. Now, every genocide is always justified by some kind of an invented ideology. Nationalistic, 
ethnic, ethnocentric, whatever. Let me give you an example of the kind of stuff that is invented to justify the genocide. In Darfur, you have a clash, basically, some exceptions, between Bedouin nomads who want to take the land, actually have already taken the land of black peasants because there are no rivers or flowing water in Darfur. It's wells. There's a rainy season between June and September. And the place is slowly drying up. And so these uh, tribes wanted and managed uh, to defeat and uh, arrest, put in camps and so on, a large part of the black farming population which had ruled Darfur for many centuries. Now, what, that's, those are pragmatic things. Now, the ideology was invented by a man by the name of Ahmed Asil Agbash, a very intelligent and bright Bedouin who had studied in Libya. And uh, he developed an ideology that said that the Bedouin nomads of Darfur and some other places are the direct descendants of the tribe of the Prophet Muhammad the Bani Quresh in Mecca. And because they are the direct descendants of the tribe of the prophet, they are entitled to get rid of these black peasants who are actually slaves or should be slaves and rule the whole area between the Nile and Lake Chad, which of course is Darfur. Now, Ahmed Asilak Bash was a member of a tribe called the Salamat tribe. And he persuaded a very major group amongst the Bedouins, amongst the nomads, a tribe, a very large tribe called Um Jalul. And there there was an elderly gentleman who was the head of the tribe. His name was Abdallah Khalil. And he became convinced that this ideology is true. Abdallah Khalil's son, Musa Khalil, was the commander of the Janjaweed militia that murdered 300,000 black Africans in Darfur. And he is now a minister in the government in Sudan, in Khartoum, Musa Khalil. So you see, ideology is important. Now this is pure invention, of course. And behind it, there is a pragmatic thing. Land, water, oil because the black peasants in Darfur wanted part of the income from the oil that the Sudanese government was getting from the Chinese. And they wanted to build roads with it, and hospitals, and renew a railway that had been there before under the British and was destroyed, and so on. So there were pragmatic reasons for this clash. And then there was an ideology on top. You have the same in Rwanda, where the Hutu power people invented a difference, a racial difference between the Tutsi and the Hutu. You have the same in Bosnia, where the Serbs said, these are not Slavs, these are Turks 
who ruled us for so many hundreds of years, got rid of them. You had the same with the Armenian genocide, and so on and so forth. There are no pragmatic reasons for the Holocaust. The Jews did not control German economy. In the whole of German economy in the 1920s, there was one major industry that was in the hands of a Jewish family, the Rathenau family, who established the electrical com combination of uh, industries, the IG, which still exists today. The head of that family was Walter Rathenau, who was minister, foreign minister of Germany, and he was murdered in 1922, and then the IG became a um, company that was controlled by non-Jews. There was no Jewish power, economic power in Germany. There were individual Jews here and there. The Jews had no army, obviously. The Jews had no territory. The Jews had no political presence. Do you know that German Jewry did not actually exist? There were German Jews, but there was no German Jewry. The first time there was a united representative, also not quite united, representation of German Jewry was in September 1933, eight months after Hitler came to power, as a response to the Hitler regime. Before that, German Jews were living in communities. Is there a political organization of American Jewry today? You have communities, you have movements, you have groups. You have a lobby in Washington, two lobbies in Washington. You have an organization of presidents of major Jewish organizations. Do you know that that organization exists actually? Jews are communities. Traditionally, they fight each other because they have different interpretation of the same texts. Jews were, and to a large extent, outside of Israel, they are not a political unit. And they don't really want to be a political unit. They want to be citizens of whatever country they live in. The Germans invented a Jewish polity. And by that invention, they caused, actually, the attempt to establish a Jewish political presence through the World Jewish Congress, which was founded in 1936 as a response to the Nazi regime. So the Nazis didn't really have anyone to attack except for their own illusions. The Nazis talked about the international conspiracy of the Jews who want to control the world which was a mirror image of what they wanted to do. They wanted to control the world. Theirs was an international conspiracy. The Jews, 17 million in 1939, had no such dreams. In any case, there could have been no international Jewish conspiracy because the Jews would never have agreed with each other as what to do. So, this was... Where did it come from? It came from Christian anti-Semitism. You can see it in the church fathers in the second and third and fourth century. You can see it in the sermons 
of, Sir, of, of Saint John in the fourth century in Constantinopolis. You can see it in the writings of Oregon and Cyprian and other church fathers. And then it sort of goes underground, comes up again in the Middle Ages. And then with the secularization of Christian Europe, it comes up again. Now the Christian church, the Catholic church, and then all the other churches later on, they persecuted the Jews because the Jews did not recognize the Christian Messiah. But there was an injunction not to kill them. It wasn't always obeyed. But if you look at St. Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century, who wrote a book against the Jews, Contra Judeos, written in 429. And if you look at that, you will see that St. Augustine says explicitly, persecute the Jews because they are sinners, but they have souls, don't kill them. So the church both persecuted the Jews and in a way provided a defense against their own incitement, against the incitement of the popes and bishops, and then the popes and bishops had to protect the Jews against the results of their own incitement against them. And that is where it comes from. But then came the secularization, and the secularization made it possible for a later Nazi movement to accept the radical anti-Semitism that preceded them without the protection of the Jews. Nazi anti-Semitism is a mutation, a deadly mutation of previous anti-Semitism. It is both a break and a continuity. This is an ideology which is totally unpragmatic. And one can show that in the Holocaust. And because of lack of time, I will give you just one example. The Nazis suffered their greatest defeat in the World War at Stalingrad on February 6, 1943, when the German Sixth Army uh, surrendered to the Soviets. And the reaction of the Nazis was immediate. They did not deny the defeat. On the contrary, they emphasized, this is a terrible danger. We lost this battle. Now we need every pair of human hands in order to replace the weapons that we lost, to strengthen our forces. And at that time in Berlin, there were still some 16, over 16,000 Jews who could work. And they were employed as forced laborers in Berlin and in the immediate outskirts of Berlin in arms factories. And on the 27th of February, exactly three weeks after the surrender at Stalingrad, the SS came into these factories, took these Jewish workers, these Jewish slave workers, put them on trains and sent them to Auschwitz to die. Does that make any sense? You kill your workers while they are producing arms for you. Is that capitalistic? Is that modern? Is that cost effective? 
So you see, you have a Nazi power that kills people against its own economic interests. And if I had time, and fortunately I don't, I could give you literally hundreds of examples, literally hundreds of examples like that, where the Germans acted against their own interests because there was an ideology for the first time in human history because of nightmarish ideological preconceptions. Millions of people were killed. The total number of Jewish victims of the Holocaust is now estimated at about 5.7 million. We think that, or I think, that this is unprecedented in human history. There's also the question of race. I already mentioned something of it. What the Nazis wanted to do, you see, is to establish a new world order in which the Nordic peoples of the Aryan race. That's a complete invention. The Germans and the Germanic peoples, that's the Scandinavians and the English, not the Scots, the English and the Flemish and the Dutch, oh yes, and the Icelanders. They were to be at the top and everybody else in the world below them. They had problems because the Japanese were not exactly Nordic peoples of the Aryan race. But the idea was to establish a new world order based on race. And race doesn't exist. Now, in this hierarchy, there would be no Jews because all the Jews would have been killed. And yet there would be Jews. Because the Jews are the Satan. The Nordic peoples of the Aryan race are the godly people. The leader is the Messiah. Now Adolf Hitler and his successor, whoever he may be, and the idea was of this kind of a future, you can find it in the teachings of Nazi professors at German universities in the 1930s and early 1940s. There has never been anything like that. We always had, you know, one religion instead of another religion, one nation instead of another nation, one empire instead of another empire, one social class instead of another social class, like in the French Revolution. So. The communist revolution was nothing new, really. But race? A new world order based on something that doesn't exist? I think national socialism, German national socialism, was the only real revolutionary movement in the 20th century because it said something utterly new. Is therefore the Holocaust unique? My answer would be definitely no. Because uniqueness would mean, you see, that this cannot be repeated. But the Holocaust, the genocide of the Jews, was done by humans, not by a god and not by a Satan. It was done for human reasons. It can be examined. It can be explained. It can be analyzed. It can be analyzed no less than the American Revolution. It's much more difficult, of course much more complicated, but it can be done. Now, if it was done by humans, then anything done by humans can be repeated by humans, never in the same way, obviously, but in similar ways. 
So no uniqueness. Uniqueness also would mean what I just said, namely that there was some in extraterritorial intervention, you know, from some god or some Satan, which is not true. But it was unprecedented. There were no precedents for the central elements in the Holocaust. So this is the most extreme form of genocide to date. Connected to the, all the other genocides. Of course it is. Because it stands out like a big black mountain in a large park of lower black mountains. Not that it's more terrible, but it's different. Not that it's not connected, it is connected to all the other genocides, and yet it stands out. And because it is unprecedented, it is a precedent. It can be repeated. Not in the same way. So, what should we do? We should prevent it from being a precedent. We should see it as a warning and not as a precedent. We should see it as the starting point of a detailed examination of genocide as such, of all the other genocides, because it's the most extreme case. You start from the most extreme case. It teaches you about all the others. It is an introduction. Don't start with the denial of human rights in order to go to the Holocaust or to genocide. Because the denial of human rights may lead to genocide, but doesn't have to. German Jews have certainly denied their human rights in the 1930s. But Nazi Germany could have been stopped quite easily, actually, by the Western powers together with the Soviet Union at the time. For various reasons it didn't happen, but it could have happened, as any historian who's dealt with the, with the, with the period knows. Now, if there had been no expansion of Nazi Germany, there would have been a different war, no war. There would have been no Holocaust. Certainly not the way that we saw it. And then we would have had to say that there was a denial of human rights in Germany, which did not lead to a mass murder or genocide. And you find the same in other places. You have denial of human rights in a lot of places that do not lead to genocide. So don't start with the human denial of human rights. End up with it. Because when, after you do study the Holocaust and other genocides, you can say, yes, the denial of human rights may lead to this. So let's start with this and then go to the denial of human rights. Lastly, can we do something about it? You know, there's that terrible old joke. I apologize for retelling it. How do you squeeze two elephants into a Volkswagen? And the answer is with great difficulty. So can it be done? Yes, with great difficulty. What should you do? And I'm now turning to the students in the audience. You live in a democratic society. It has its faults, it has its problems, its crises, and so on and so forth. Democracy is not something that comes naturally. The human 
race has not lived in any kind of democracy until modern times. Athens was not a democracy. It was based on slavery. The United States was slaved, based on slavery until 1965, 1865, and then after a short period, black people were again pushed into discrimination and denial of civic rights. America became a democracy in 1968. Britain became a democracy in 1919 when women received the power of voting. And so on and so forth. The Jews never had a democracy before the State of Israel. They were ruled by oligarchies in communities all over the place. So democracy is a tender weed. You have to tend it. You have to supply it with lots of water and nutrients. You've got to fight every way, every step of the way to defend it, to expand it, to convince more and more people that that's the right way. Because democracy, you know, does prevent genocide. Democracy can prevent genocide. The expansion of human rights can help in this, and so on. It's all connected, and yet each part is different. So when I talk to students, I say, it won't be in my generation, too old. It should be in your generation. So do everything in your power to make the Holocaust a warning and not a precedent. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.